Okay, so to the uh, message for today. So in 2005, I wanted to see if you guys know, do you guys recognize who this person is? I need to turn this thing on first. There we go. I'll try it again. I think I got the wrong one. All right, if you guys could click for me, that'd be great. Um, do you recognize the person on the screen right there? Who is that? Okay, Steve Jobs. Everyone knows who Steve, who Steve, Job is. Steve Jobs is. Okay, he's the man behind all things Apple. Um, he once delivered a graduation speech at Stanford University, which is kind of odd because he never finished college himself. Um, but they were like, come and give a speech and, and share your wisdom with us. And at the end of the speech, he said this really long quote. He said this, nobody wants to die. Even people who want, who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you'll be gra you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but this is quite true. And he says, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. I'm going I'm to pause at the end of this slide, so don't go to the next slide just yet. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? What's he gonna, how, how's he going to finish that statement? Follow what? He's not going to say Jesus. I think he was a Buddhist. Follow your heart, right? Yes. All right. All right, let's finish the slide. Follow your heart and your intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. So there it is. Follow your heart. That's the title of today's message. Um, this is the lie. If you're kind of new here, um, we're covering a lie that we, we tend to fall for. This is true for Christians and non-Christians. And so um, when you tell someone the title, that we're not saying you should follow your heart. We're saying that's a lie we often fall prey to, that many of us fall prey to in our lives. We've been going through a list of these lies. You can check them out on our podcast later on if you want to. Um, but was, was everything he said a lie in that little quote there? No, there's some truth to what he was saying um, as, he, as he walked through the, uh, that, that speech there at Stanford. But this is what makes, I think, things so tempting and so alluring uh, in these situations because I, I don't think it's surprising that he named his company Apple. Put my next slide up on the screen there. Um, click. There we go. All right, so um, I never made this connection. I don't think he really intended this, but I'm not saying that, um, that Adam and Eve ate an apple, right? We're not saying that. But it's, it's almost like it's, it's as if he was holding out a piece of forbidden fruit to the crowd saying, here, eat this, consume this. And, of course, they consumed every bite of that. Because in our culture today, that statement, follow your heart, is kind of held up as like, yeah, everyone believes that. I mean, non-Christians, Christians, we kind of live our lives by that statement a lot of the time. And you'll hear people say it. You'll hear... You'll hear school um, your teachers say it. You'll hear your parents say it. You'll hear um, really anybody probably involved in your life will at some point say this statement and will treat it like it is 
truth and, and something that should shape uh, our lives. We should live our lives by this, this kind of thing. Now, when people say this statement, what do they mean by it? Because it's usually said in the context of you trying to make some big decision, isn't it? You know, at the end of the day, you got to do what's right for you and not worry about what everyone else thinks or says. You need to follow your heart. That's how people tend to think, right? So before we talk about what's wrong with the statement, let's ask, um, what is the heart in the Bible? So what is the heart? So the Hebrew word is uh, labab or leb in Hebrew. The Greek word is cardia, where we get cardiologists from, of course. And, uh, and of course, that's a heart doctor. And when it's used in the Bible, the heart is seen in the Bible as the hub of our emotions, desires, and feelings. So when someone says, follow your heart today, what they usually mean is let your, let your feelings be your guide. Let your feelings guide you. But here's the problem. Our feelings can change, can't they? Like when I think about, it's actually scary to think about, what if I had followed my heart in certain decisions back when I was younger because I felt really strongly about certain things. And what if I had followed my heart in those situations, in those circumstances, what would my life look like today? And it's kind of frightening for me to think about. So here's the issue. Our feelings can change. Our desires can change. Our emotions, our emotions can change. And if we, if, we, if, we were to all, if we were to always follow our, our feelings, we'd be all over the place with our decisions and how we think about things. So I want you to see how the Bible talks about the heart in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 through 10. Here's what it says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So this is the kind of verse that like never makes it onto a, like a coffee cup or like a t-shirt, right? Um, no one ever wears these kinds of verses um, and displays them for people to see. Uh, and so that word deceitful means like uneven, like crooked, like a bad road. Desperately sick means medically incurable. So this is describing someone before they come to faith um, in God. But before we come to faith in, in Christ, we, we like to appoint ourselves as the one who knows our heart the best. But God says right here that he's the one who searches the heart. He's the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. And so Jesus also says some things about the heart over in Mark chapter 7, verse uh, 21 to 23. Here's what it says. For from within, you're hearing the junior high team, they're doing worship at the end today. So that's what you're hearing. You're like, they're, they're really basing out over there for some reason. Um, it says, for from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, whenever we are young in our faith, we tend to see sin as this only, like, outward thing, right? But we have to learn how to see it as inward. I know whenever we do the impact uh, Bible um, stories and gospel illustrations and all those kind of things— um, what is the statement that Kim Ronsleben has had you guys say at the end of your definition of sin? What does she say? It starts in the heart, right? And that's a really important addition because some, so often when you're a kid, you think of 
sin as just anything you think, say, or do that displeases God, and you stop right there, and it's just this outward activity you think of as sin. But sin always begins in the heart. There's never been a sin committed externally that first wasn't committed internally inside the heart. And that's what this verse is talking about. And the whole Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gives that sermon, is about this idea that sin begins inside and then it works itself out in action and thoughts and, and things in your life in tangible ways, but it always begins in the heart. Now, what if I said to you, I just introduced you guys, some new leaders in the freshman class, also the sophomore class. What if I said to you, I have a new leader I want you all to meet, and he's going to be your mentor. And I want you to trust what he says. I want you to do what he says. And you might look at me and say, well, well thank you, Dave. I'd, I'd love to meet this person. You, you speak so highly of him. Uh, can you say more about this person? And what if I said to you, well, okay, I'll give you some ideas on the, what this person is like. Well, he is... He's deceitful above all things. He produces nothing but evil thoughts. He's sexually immoral. He likes to steal, kill, and covet. He's wicked. He's envious, slanderous, prideful. And above all, he's very foolish. You'd look at me like I was crazy. You're like, why would I want to follow someone like that, right? We never follow a person like this. But Jesus says that's exactly what our heart is like apart from him. So whenever we say we are... Whenever we say we are following our heart, I believe something else is happening whenever we make that statement. Whenever we claim we are simply following our heart, we are really feeding our heart. And what I mean by that is when people use that phrase, follow your heart, it's usually something, not always, something that is kind of selfishly driven, selfishly motivated, and they will start to see things. They will have this sort of selfish desire that they want to do or someone they want to be with or whatever it might be, and, and they will start to see things in their life and say, you know, this matches up with what I think I already feel anyway. And so, and, and they start doing actions. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe someone is pursuing, um, they're unequally yoked in a relationship. One person's a believer, one person's not a believer. And the person that's a believer is starting to just you know, feed their heart with ideas and, and actions that are kind of feeding into that relationship. And what can happen is you, you think to yourself, I'm just following after my heart. No, you're really just, you're feeding your heart. You're, you're feeding your heart things, false things, that God doesn't want you to feed your heart because this is really what you want. This isn't what, what God wants for you. And I think of all kinds of scenarios like this. I've heard of people that will, will come and say things like, you know, I just feel like God's calling me to go do fill in the blank. And, it, and at first you're like, okay, that sounds like a noble thing, but have you kind of weighed that out with people? Have you asked wiser people, wiser than, than ourselves, what they think about what you're pro- proclaiming God's called you to, to go and do? And, and kind of weighed that thing out and, and, and really thought about God's will in that way? And oftentimes it's like, no, once God speaks to me, that's all that matters. And I'm going to follow after what I feel like God wants me to go do. And it can be something that might be a noble thing sometimes. But I think what we're doing, we're oftentimes, we're we're feeding our heart these things. When we say we're just following after our heart, that's really what can be happening. So why are our hearts in this condition that we're talking about this morning and that Jesus describes here? So I want you to go over to Genesis 
uh, Genesis chapter 1. And we'll have these verses on the screen for you here in just a moment. But in Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to give you an overlay of the whole chapter. So in Genesis chapter 1, God creates by just speaking things into existence. And he says, let there be light. And of course, there's light. He creates an expanse to separate the water above from the water below. Then he creates dry land. And then he commands the earth to bring forth vegetation and then trees. And then he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, then the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, livestock, creeping things, and all the beasts of the earth. And so far, so far up to that point, God speaks everything into existence. But in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, something is different. In Genesis 1, 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So who is the, who is the us in Genesis 1.20? It's really the Trinity. It's Father, Son, and Spirit joining together, the Godhead joining together, Father, Son, Spirit joining together in creating. So God makes man in his image. So what does it mean that he's made in his image? Well, in creation, there's nothing that resembles God more than humanity. There's nothing created that that resembles God more than humanity. But this does not mean that we are equal with God and that we should not be worshipped as God. Because in Genesis 2, verse 7, skip down there, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, I've always been blown away at the contrast of Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 2.7, because on the one hand, in 1.26, it, it makes us sound glorious, and, and in one sense, we kind of are because we're made in his image. But then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, the Lord God formed the man out of dirt. And I love that picture because it's a contrast. Like one can make you feel really prideful and arrogant, like, you know, yeah, we're made in God's image. Look how special and valuable we are. But then it says, but then you're made out of dirt. And so that kind of humbles me in a way. It's a good reminder that I'm not all that important. And so, so mankind is like this contrast of being made in his image, but also reminding ourselves that we're made from, Adam at least, was made from the dust of the ground. And so before God creates man, God speaks everything into existence, but then he does something different with mankind. He makes man from something that he'd already created. Then once he creates Adam, he then creates Eve from Adam, also making her from something that he's already created. And you fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, then Satan shows up to tempt Adam and Eve. And, and how does Satan tempt them? What he does, he, he starts to sow doubt about the Word of God by asking things like, did God actually say, you know, fill in the blank? And then he calls God a liar by saying, you know, you will not surely die whenever Eve gives the response that they're in Genesis chapter 3. And then Satan tells both Adam and Eve, He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So what is he doing? What is Satan doing there? Well, he's tempting them in the same way that he tempts you and me. He's saying, listen, you don't need God. 
You just need to believe in yourself. You just need to follow your heart. So in, in the garden, essentially, it's not his words, but essentially that's what he's saying. So the statement that we hear in our culture all the time, we can link it all the way back to the first sin with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's really the, the same idea. Listen, don't listen to God. You need to follow after what, what you want. Follow after what you think is best for you. The Bible says that this first sin casts all of humanity into sin. This means that we're born into sin with a sinful nature. So you and I, from birth, we are born into sin. If you've noticed, if you have younger siblings, no one had to teach them how to sin. They do it fine all by themselves. We'd have to learn how to do that. We're born with a sin nature. And... um, so what, what's being described in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is that we're born into sin. We are born physically alive. We're born spiritually dead apart from God. And this is why our hearts are full of what Jesus describes over in Mark chapter 7. And this is why the heart cannot be trusted. Now, um, you've heard two big ideas this morning that we're created in God's image, but we're also born spiritually dead. We are born into sin, born separated from God. And again, these ideas also seem to contradict one another. We're, that we're made in his image, and that's true, but it's also true that we're born spiritually dead. We are born into sin. So we are God-like and very not God-like at the same time. And this is why we, we cannot trust our hearts. So there's a story I'm going to use to illustrate both these ideas, and I used this in the main service about, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, you don't know this person on the screen. This is a guy named uh, Harrison O'Keen, and he is from Nigeria, and in 2013, he was serving as a cook on a tugboat there off the coast of Nigeria, and one night in heavy seas, the boat capsizes, and it sinks 100 feet to the bottom of the ocean. And it takes three days for a search and recovery team to go and find the boat and get a plan together to to start recovering these dead bodies. Now, my question is, when you you think about that, that that there's there's these people that know there's about 12 men on this boat, and they think that all of them are dead at the bottom of the sea. And you have to ask yourself the question, why would other humans risk their lives to go dive down into the ocean just to recover some dead bodies off the ocean floor. That's image of God stuff. That's even the unbeliever knowing that there's something special or valuable about mankind because people don't go and do stuff like that for even their pets. Like you would rarely never like risk your life in a situation to go after an animal, just a body, right? You wouldn't typically do that. But there's something special about mankind where even the unbeliever knows there's something different about mankind. And so this team gets together. They go down into this um, 100 feet below the, uh, the ocean level there to the, to, to the sea floor, and they're going to recover these dead bodies. Now, here's what happens. As these, um, as these divers go down, they begin searching each room of the boat. And the boat's now upside down on the bottom of the sea, and as they enter into this one room, one diver starts, he sees a hand in the murky waters. 
And as he reaches out, the hand grabs back. And somehow there's this one guy who is still alive. What's happened, you might ask, how is that possible? What's happened is that when the boat sank quickly, it went upside down and an air pocket formed in this one room in the hull of the boat. And somehow he found his way in the darkness into that room. And he's in this air bubble under the sea for 60 hours. Can't see anything. Has no food, has no water. And he's faced with the proposition, do I wait here and just hope and pray for miraculous rescue? Or do I try to get out and swim to the top, knowing he's going to die most likely if he tries that method? And so he stays put in this little air pocket for 60 plus hours. And I want you to hear him share part of his story here in this video. Lights went off and the vessel capsided. And I was there trying to like, and the WC fell on my head and tear my head. And I was there struggling on how I can be able to open the door. When I was right there in the water, when I have access to nothing, right down inside the water, I thought of my family, thought of my, my mom, my brothers, my wife, I have access to none of them, no way to get to them. And I was riding the water and I know I'm going to die. But the only thing I could put my hope and trust in and my confidence in is God. I don't know it's up to three days because I was thinking it's just a day, maybe it's getting to the evening. I was there, keep on praying, 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 praying. When I prayed for some time, I stopped. And I said, God, let that will be done as it is in heaven because I have tried my best. And I have called on you and you have never feed me before. You will never fade me at all in my life. So as I say that to me, if death comes, let it come. If death did not come, I know he's going to rescue me. So as I was there like that, I kept calm. And I was bold because I was not afraid anymore because I know it's life and death. The, the, road, the, the, the line is already drawn. If you want to come, let it come. What's your name? Harrison. I keep replaying in my mind over and over, like, how, what was his mindset during those 60 hours of being in that boat in that way? And listen, I can't imagine anyone being closer to death without dying than someone like this. I mean, he's on the brink of death, the doorstep of death, but then he's somehow rescued. And it's this incredible story. But as great as that rescue is, it still doesn't compare to the rescue that, that God offers to you and I. Because the Bible tells us that in our sinful state, that we weren't just on the brink of death. We weren't just on the doorstep of death. The Bible says we were completely dead in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, in our sins, in our trespasses. And, and God doesn't just simply throw us a life preserver, but he gathers up our dead, lifeless body, and he breathes spiritual life into us. And that is the gospel message. We weren't just almost dead. We were completely dead. And because of that, the Bible is clear that we don't need to follow our heart, but we need a new heart. We need transformation. And so Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, where God says to the nation of Israel, he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will, that I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So God describes this future time when he'll restore the nation of Israel. And it's not just going to be this outward restoration, but it's going to be an inward one as well. 
and is going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. So surrendering to Christ is not only about behavior change, but it's also about heart change. It's an inward transformation. Now, if, you're, if we're honest, right now, some of us trust our own heart more than we trust Jesus. And that's true for the unbeliever. It's true for the believer. That right now, as you sit here, as I stand on this stage, we trust our own heart more than we trust Jesus. And I know some might ask, and that's a fair question, well, if, if God gives us a new heart as a believer, then, then can't we follow that heart? And here's why I would warn against that. Because this side of heaven, it is still affected by sin. So before Christ, we were complete and total slaves of sin, powerless to do anything against sin in our lives. But then as Christ followers, we're now at war with sin, as Paul talks about over in Romans chapter 7. So now we're at war with sin as believers, and one day we're going to have final victory over sin, but that day is future. I like how Shane Pruitt puts this in his book. He says, says, our hearts were never designed to be gods in whom we believe. No, they were designed to believe in God. And so just very simply this morning, I want to say this to you. We don't follow our heart. We follow after Jesus. Let me pray for you. And you guys can head to your, um, your breakouts. God, thank you for um, your words and your scriptures. We thank you that we get to um, see how those words contradict uh, things that we think in our hearts, in our minds, in our culture, in our world. And God, we pray that um, as we uh, just continue discussion about the, this topic in our, in our groups, that you would uh, be working through our leaders, be working on our students. And uh, just bring to mind areas of our lives that we are, we are living this out even if we're not admitting it. That we are truly following our heart and not following after you.